Dan, thank you for jumping in back there. Uh, Dan is our slide projector guy, jumped in at the last minute because the regular guy pulled a no-show on him, so he jumped in there to, to take care of it. So, And he wasn't here for rehearsal, so Dan, thank you for stepping in there. The reason I bring that up is they never get credit until the slide doesn't change and everyone does this. Come on. You know, it's just a slide, but he had no idea that he was going to jump in there, so thank you. That's what it's about, right? You find a need, you fill a need, so thank you, brother. Uh, Romans chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 1. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you're going to find that on page 883. Romans chapter 1 or page 883 in our Pew Bibles. I hope you were able to be with us last week as we did our reading service of Romans chapters 1 through 8. This morning we're going to do a dive into our study of the book. Now it seems to me that... um, at one time or another, uh, amongst Christians, the book of Romans seems to be their favorite book of the Bible. And I think the longer you are true, the more that this is, or the longer you are a Christian, the more true this is of you. The longer that you are a Christian and you struggle with uh, God's grace and God's law, it's true that Romans becomes a favorite book of yours. The longer you struggle with living by faith and yet struggling with your faith, the longer you struggle with um, fighting against sin, yet sometimes succumbing to it, wanting to be more, yearning to be more, but realizing you're not, the more these things are true of you, the more I find you will love what the book of Romans has to say. If you happen to struggle with the moral complexities of the Christian faith, then Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 are going to be for you. If you struggle with the intellectual complexities of the Christian faith, then Romans chapters 9, 10, 11 will be for you. J.I. Packer, in his best-selling book, Knowing God, said, Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of Scripture. All roads in the Bible lead to Romans. All views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. But it's not just in a personal way that the book of Romans grabs us. If you are a Christian, this book is your legacy. St. Augustine, probably the most brilliant theological mind of the early centuries of the Christian church, was brought to conviction of sin and salvation when he was reading Romans chapter 13. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, uh, was transformed as he studied Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and later went on to lead the Protestant Reformation. John Wesley, in listening to the reading of Luther's preference to the epistle of Romans, uh, was so captivated he was converted and became the catalyst for the great evangelical revival that swept through Great Britain in the 18th century, which many historians say if not for the evangelical resurgence in Great Britain, uh, England would have devolved into the anarchy and chaos that was going on in France because of the French Revolution. John Bunyan was also so inspired by this book as he was reading uh, Romans in his Bedford jail cell that he wrote The Immortal Pilgrim's Progress. The power of this book and just the the massiveness of its themes is the exact reason that, that preachers and students are both excited and afraid to preach it. But Romans, it's, it's not just at a personal level or a historical level that it's powerful, but on a cultural level as well. You see, in our postmodern age when 
most of our culture, and unfortunately even many Christians, don't believe in what's called the meta-narrative, and that the meta-narrative is basically the idea that there is an overarching story that transcends all other stories, and really up until the Enlightenment period, all societies and Western civilizations believed in a sacred order, but since the Enlightenment period, that is not the case at all. In this time period when we find ourselves late modernity, we in our culture believe that really life is nothing more than a multitude of perspectives, a multitude of interpretations, a multitude of truths, and all these truths and perspectives and interpretations ought to be respected with, on equal level regardless of how contradictory they might be without any regard to our obligations to God or the world around us. The book of Romans, friends, is a, is a metaphorical finger in the eye to that view. You see, as we'll read in this book in Romans, Paul is saying that there is an overarching story that transcends all other stories. There is a purpose to all of life's events. Life History, culture, all have a terminal point, an appointment, if you will, with our Creator. This book makes it really clear that life is just not endless perspectives, totally changing and fluid with whoever writes the stories, but rather human history is actually one story. It is the canvas upon which God is writing his story, his plans, his purposes, and upon this canvas of human history, his will, his desires and commands are being sculpted, written, recorded, and fulfilled. I think it's true to be said to the degree that you understand to the degree you don't understand the gospel, the book of Romans will shock you. But to the degree that you're willing to hear the gospel and dig deep and dive in and hang tough, that shock will soon turn into sense. And as you continue to press into Paul's writings, that sense will grow into a certainty. And that certainty transforms into an affection and confidence in who God is and what he is doing in this world. All this is in the book of Romans. And it begins this morning in a really kind of paradoxical way with a messenger that really shouldn't be proclaiming a message that really shouldn't exist. Now, I know we did this last week, but by way of reminder, I'd like to read at least the first seven verses again with this, to this letter, of this letter to you. So would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? We'll be reading Romans, or I'll be reading Romans chapter 1, going from verses 1 to 7. This is what Paul writes. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, without a doubt, uh, this introduction in Romans is the longest of any in Paul's letters, and there's probably a couple reasons for this. Number one, um, 
Paul did not plant the Roman church, nor did he disciple any of its converts. So it's very likely that the majority of the Roman church really didn't know Paul at all. And so what he's doing is he's establishing his apostolic credentials, his role in the church. So he's trying to creating a repertoire with them. Number two, um, kind of as a result of that, as of his calling as apostle to the Gentiles, Paul wants to make sure that this church, this Roman church, hears the gospel message in its entirety, undiluted with all of its richness and complexity uh, and its simplicity in its entirety. In one way of thinking of it, the book of Romans, it's, it's, it's the only letter that Paul wrote that wasn't occasioned by a situation in one of the churches of the New Testament. In other words, all the t- epistles of the New Testament that Paul wrote were written in response to a certain situation or, or situation in, in that church. That is true of all the books with the exception of the book of Romans. This is purely from Paul's mind a treatise, maybe a thesis of what the gospel is. As a matter of fact, uh, John Calvin says of the book of Romans, if one understands Romans, a sure road to understanding all of Holy Scripture opens before them. And at the heart of this introduction, there are a couple of paradoxes. Maybe if you've been looking at this, you've kind of seen them yourself. Number one, Paul himself, a former enemy of the faith, is now the chief proclaimer of the gospel. And the gospel itself, an ancient message made new by the God-man, Jesus, who's offering life through his death. There's a lot of paradoxes in these seven verses. So what we're going to do is to make it simple, we're just going to look at two of them. Paul as, as the historical paradox, and then the gospel itself as the amazing paradox. So let's look at it. Paul, now notice with me, if you will, this twofold designation that Paul gives to himself, servant and apostle. Now, servant, or truer to the Greek in the, the Greek text, doulos, it means slave. Friends, no doubt a title of great humiliation. But this title was very intentional on Paul's part. He only introduces himself as doulos, slave, two other times in all of his other epistles. So of the, of the 13 books of the Bible that Paul writes... Only three times he gives himself the designation of the doulos, the slave. Now, the Romans would have been very familiar with this, with this title. During the time of Paul's writing uh, the epistle to the Romans, it's probably between 54 and 59 A.D., uh, the Emperor Nero was the Emperor of Rome at the time, and, and this was before Nero just went off the rails and became the scourge of history that we mostly know him for. At this time of Nero's reign, it was almost the golden era of Nero's, um, Nero's rule in Rome. Rome had a population of about 400,000 individuals. 30% of them, so 120,000 of the 400,000, were slaves. So you could say on one hand that Paul was pretty smart connecting with his audience as no doubt many within the Roman church were douloi, douloi, the plural doulos, slaves themselves. But friends, it was more than audience adaptation that Paul was going after. Paul truly saw himself as Christ's. He knew himself to be Christ's doulos, slave which expressed uh, personal insignificance, one without rights of his own, having been purchased for the use by another. He knew he was Christ's, not his own. Yet he also uses another 
shocking title when you introduce yourself as a slave, a doulos, then he immediately calls himself an apostle, which is almost the exact opposite of what you might think a slave was, a title of great authority, not great humility, expressing privilege and dignity. Here was Paul, one of the most astounding leaders of the early church, full of humility and full of authority. And if you know anything about leadership, those two ought to be combined, but rarely are, aren't they? But it's so essential for leadership. Just a couple weeks ago, I got to share this very point as I was addressing the city council of our city. And if you've ever been in City Hall, you know, there's this, they sit behind this kind of, well, now there's this glass, but there's this, it's this regal, almost like a judge's bench, and there's several of them sitting there, and then there's a little podium where you can address them, and, and then all the residents will sit behind, and I had a chance to, to pray for them, and before I started praying for them, I started talking about their need for humility to be wed with the authority that they have. You see, one without the other will not bear fruit for our city. I said, if you just have authority, but you don't have humility, your leadership can become abusive. But on the other hand, if you just have humility and you don't know how to use your authority, your leadership becomes ineffective. And so you have to bring together two attributes that are almost contrary to one another. And how can we do this? And so, you know, I had just got through preaching about the Holy Spirit, so I was dipping into some of my sermon notes, and you all know the answer. How do we bring together seemingly, apparently contradictory attributes and hold them together? You know how we do this, because that is the essence of who Jesus was. Able to bring together diverse attributes that almost seem impossible to be wed together, but happen because of the Holy Spirit. And I said, what you need is the wisdom from above. Right? I don't know if they're Christians or not, but I says, look, you've got to serve people with both humility and authority. And the only way you can do that is if you have the wisdom of Christ. And so I'm going to pray that you have the wisdom of Christ to lead our people. And we see that here in Paul, in his titles, a slave and an apostle. In one sense, friends, Paul was just like the one who called him into service. Jesus, the God-man, full of authority full of humility. And friends, in part, isn't that what the message of Christ does when it gets into your heart? You know you've got the gospel when you understand both of these things can be held together. On the one hand, the gospel humbles you. Right? It, it completely lets you know you know of your unworthiness and your insignificance. You know your place. But yet on the other hand, the gospel esteems you. It excites you. It exalts you because you know the one who loves you is unimaginably worthy. You know your privilege. And so the gospel can bring together things in someone's life that's almost impossible elsewise. It's kind of like how the gospel, because you understand the gospel on the one and the same time, it totally lays you low, but it completely lifts you up. It's kind of like being the, the, the awkward freshman kid that gets asked to senior prom by the captain of the cheerleading squad, right? You're like, what in the world? I have who, me, you, right? Well, for women, maybe it's a better illustration would be uh, uh, Cinderella being asked by Prince Charming to go to the ball, right? The same concept. And friends, here's the thing with traditional religion. Here's, here's the difference here. See, the, the thing with traditional religion is that what it will do is either make you very uh, self-righteous 
because you're able to do the things that the religion asks of you because it's all about your works and it's all about you. And so you're very self-righteous about yourself, so you're full of pride, or you're just self-loathing because it's all about you and you know you never can match up, you're never good enough, you can never do what's expected of you, and so you're just full of fear all the time because you're just going to blow it. But see, the, 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 the gospel is completely different than religion in that way. It completely decimates our pride because we're no, we know we are unworthy, but it also completely decimates our fear because we know the one that is worthy loves us. And so unlike tradition, which will make us either righteous or, or loathing or full of pride or full of fear, the gospel fills us with grace. It can bring together two things that seem almost impossible. And we see this in, what, in Paul's life as well. And Paul says, back to our text, he says he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we'll get into that in a little bit because that's what verses 2 to 4 are about. But I want to talk about verse 5. You notice Paul answers what his apostleship is, is made up of, the what, the why, and the who of his apostleship. See there right in verse 5. He says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. And notice in three prepositional phrases, he describes the what, the, the why, and the who of this apostleship. The what is to bring about the obedience of the faith. The who is for the sake of his name, and, and excuse me, for the, the why is for the sake of his name, and the who is for all the nations. Let's look at them one at a time. So the what of his apostleship. It is to bring about, he says, the obedience of faith. Friends, how, how ironic, stop and think for a second, how ironic that according to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he was a, a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of the law. What a paradox to have a Pharisee, one who esteemed the law, one who lived by the law, the one who loved the law, realizing that that was a failed attempt. And so he talks about the obedience of faith. We'll unpack that in a little bit, but here's the thing. I think many people still live by the law, Right? They think that God will love them if they do the right things. That at the end of the day, God will have some kind of cosmic scale and on the one hand weigh his, their good deeds and on the other hand have their bad deeds and God will love us accordingly to which side that scale tips. Again, we will either live with pride because our good deeds outweigh the bad or we live in fear because our bad outweigh the good. See, that's what traditional religion is all about. That's how we traditionally relate to God, but that's not the gospel. See, the problem with all religions can be summed up with this question. Here it is. The problem with all traditional religions can be summed up with this question. Have you ever tried training a dog to meow? Or have you tried to get a cat to bark? Now, you can try, but guess what? It's not going to happen. At best, you will have a funny video that you can post online, but it won't happen. Why? Because a dog will always be a dog. A cat will always be a cat. It cannot happen because you're challenged with the very nature of the animal before you. So no matter how try hard you try to change the behavior, a dog will not meow, a cat will not bark. In the same way, Christianity is not about changing your behavior. I don't know. It's a lot more ambitious and more drastic than that. What the gospel talks about is actually changing you. 
And that cannot happen through mere moral reform, but faith in the one who can transform you. So when Paul talks about the obedience of faith, what he's saying is the obedience that is itself faith. Now, for those of you who are are, are looking at the grammar, and you ought to be if you're studying the Bible, God chose to use language as the medium. Obedience of faith, you have to be asking yourself, well, what's the relationship here of this genitive of faith to obedience? And basically, it comes down to this. It's, it's, It's a genitive of what's called opposition. The obedience, which is faith, right? That's a genitive of opposition. Or it's a genitive of source. The obedience that has its source in faith. Either way, what he's talking about is our obedience is itself, or our faith is the obedience that is required. But friends, because it's a saving faith, it is a changing faith. That is, it changes you. Not from the outside in like moral reform, but from the inside out because you've been given a new heart, a new nature. This dog can meow because the very nature has now been changed, not because it learned new behaviors to mimic something else. Paul says, that's what my, that's what my apostleship is about, to bring about the obedience, which is faith, faith in the one that can bring the change, not faith in your own moral reform. But Paul also says the why of his apostleship right here, right after that, for the sake of his name. For Jesus' sake. You see, friends, Christianity is not about our good deeds. It is about what Paul says in Romans 5.18, the one act of righteousness. It is not about our good deeds, but Christ's good deed. Christ fulfilling all righteousness. Christ satisfying God's wrath against sin. Christ bridging the unbridgeable gap between God and man because Christ is the God-man. And so he's the only one that gets praised. Again, in traditional religion, in those systems, who gets the glory? You do because you were self-righteous enough to actually do it. Who gets the shame? You do, because you were the one who failed against it. But in the gospel, it's all on Christ. He takes our shame so that we can have his glory. Finally, Paul says the who of his apostleship. So what is his apostleship about? Verse 5, to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Well, that's you and I. Jew and Gentile, black, white, red, yellow, pink, whatever color in between, that's all of us. We are all in the same boat, which is why the gospel is available to all. So this is Paul, a historical paradox, a slave who's entrusted with great authority, a Pharisee proclaiming the fulfillment of law through faith, a Jew who is passionately concerned about us Gentiles. But in the middle of this is something even more amazing, and that's the gospel itself. And you see that in verses 2 through 4. Now, notice how Paul says something very interesting. He says, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, why would Paul have to specify whose gospel it is? I mean, we all know, right, the gospel, it's God's gospel. Well, that's not the case at all. 
All right? we, we forget history. We forget how much Christianity has influenced history. But there were many gospels in Paul's day. There were gospels all around because gospel simply means good news, good tidings, right? And there were many gospels at that time. In fact, this is how the birth and the life and the deeds of the Caesars were celebrated. They were gospel for the world. Let me, let me show you something here. I don't think you're going to read it, obviously. Uh, this is in the Berlin Museum. It's a calendar screen, uh, inscription of Pyrene, and, and that's Greek. You can't see it, so let me read part of the inscription here. This is what it says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. So this is celebrating uh, the, the life and the deeds of Caesar Augustus, born about 63 B.C., although this inscription was, was created in 9 B.C. Anyway, celebrating Augustus, sending him as a savior that he might end war and arrange all things. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. The Roman world, friends, just like today, was full of other gospels, other stories of salvation, other stories to live your life by that will make things turn out okay. So Paul is being very clear. There is only one gospel that matters, and it is the gospel of God. Now, friend, today the gospel of God still needs to be clarified because today it still lives with other gospels. And I, and I don't mean of the religious variation, right, whether it's the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormon gospel or the gospel you might hear on Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is all, you know, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. These are all false gospels with false saviors. You're well taught enough to know to avoid those. That's not what I'm talking about. But there are other gospels floating around in the world. And there are other gospels that float around in the evangelical church. They're not forefront. They're not front and center. It's not the things we talk about necessarily, but they are there kind of lurking in the background that kind of come to the surface when certain circumstances or situations arise. We have political gospels. We have work ethic gospels. we got family gospels, moral gospels, social gospels. Right? You guys are familiar with them. We have a gospel of um, working hard, Right? And salvation is about getting all you can out of this life. Climb the corporate ladder, move through the promotional ranks, enjoy the perks, enjoy the extra incomes that comes with that. Sometimes the, the working gospel gets mixed in with what I call the family gospel, where salvation is, is more like maybe called the American gospel, where salvation is having a, a wonderful life with 2.3 well-behaved kids, you know, college educated, the right house in the right neighborhood, driving the right car, well, minivan, if you're depending on what stage of, ch of parenthood you are in, but it, it, they're kind of blended together, like that's what's going to make life life okay. That's the salvation. Now, if you're paying attention to what's happening culturally, there's another new gospel, but it's not new if you know history because this was running rampant through the church in the 1920s. It's kind of the social gospel, and their salvation is seen as being on the right side of the issues, having a good understanding of gender, power structures, class, uh, signaling the right virtues, signing the right change.org petitions, right? That's what salvation's about. But friends, whatever, whatever gospel there might be out there, the question you have to ask is, does the gospel of God need to be clarified in your life? And it's not seen in the things you'll say, but in the way you live, the actions you take or don't take. And the challenge with all these gospel stories is they fall apart, every one of them, 
because like the Caesars of Rome's time, they're all based on fragile foundations. And as a result, it creates two kinds of people. On the one hand, they're, they're, they're fearful and anxious people. Because, because that salvation is so fragile or that salvation is so elusive. And so if they got it, they're so afraid that they're going to lose it. Or they're so full of anxiety because they can't actually get that salvation. Or they become angry and defensive kinds of people because they're always having to justify their gospel over against the biblical gospel. And their allegiances are torn. Friends, does the gospel of God need to be clarified in your life? And it's not going to be found in the things you say at community group but in the pressure points of life. The choices you make or don't make, the decisions you make, reveals the gospel that you live your life by. And so Paul makes it clear what he's writing about is the gospel of God, not any other gospel that they are familiar with. One that is radically different, but it is not new. Did you notice that? Did you notice this? That the gospel is not some new discovery. In fact, Paul says that's what the Old Testament is all about. You thought it was just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm -mm. Paul says this gospel, which was taught beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Scriptures, it's concerning what? Verse 3 it's concerning his son. Friends, what that tells me is if, if you ever think about the Old Testament and it seems obtuse or confusing or dense or all these various stories, and you don't know who's doing what, Paul is giving us the interpretive key to the Old Testament. And he's saying it right here, it's concerning Jesus Christ. By the way, it's not just Paul that says that. Jesus said the same thing. John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the rabbis, the religious leaders of the day, because you think in them you've got eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Notice what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus to two, some, two disciples after his resurrection. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Oh, I would have loved to listen to that Bible study, right? Here's another verse from Luke 24. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So by the way, that's a technical thing going on here. Jesus is referring to the three parts of the Old Testament, the the law, the prophets, and the wisdom. Psalms representing the wisdom literature. So he's, he's making an allusion to all the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Everything written about me in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's the gospel. The interpretive key to understand the Old Testament is the gospel. Friends, you know, we study, and I love the Old Testament. It's not because we're fascinated by Jewish culture or or Middle East cultures, although we have great admiration and respect for them. The reason the Old Testament is worthy of our study and analysis and reading is because it gives us a fuller appreciation and understanding, and, and makes the, the, the understanding of Jesus so thick in all the events and the institutions and the characters of the Old Testament, how they point us all to what Jesus is about and will do. After all, Jesus is the true and better Adam, isn't he? 
who passed the temptation in the garden. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, and his righteousness is now imputed to us. Hebrews 12 tells us, Jesus is the true and better able, who though innocently slain, his blood cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answers the, God, the, answers the call of God to leave all that is familiar and to go into the unknown void. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the true son of joy and gladness and grace who was offered up for us all. He is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserve. So like Jacob, we only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up. Jesus is the true Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives the very brothers who betrayed him and sold him out and now uses his power to save them, not condemn them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant, Hebrews 3 tells us. Jesus is that rock of Moses who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in a barren desert. He is the true and better Joshua, who is the general of the Lord's army. He is the true and better Job, the only innocent sufferer who intercedes on behalf of his friends. Jesus is the true and better Samson, whose death accomplishes so much good. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they didn't lift a stone to assist him. He is the true and better Jonah who gets thrown out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the one who spends three days in the belly of the earth so we as his people could be saved. He is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, he lost the heavenly palace. He didn't just risk losing his life, but he lost his life to save his people who had a death sentence over their heads. Friends, every event, every institution, most of the characters of the Old Testament They're there pointing us towards one day a real deliverer will come. One day an end to all this craziness and chaos and bloodshed and confusion. And it will all culminate in this one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on to to describe Jesus even further. Notice that in in, uh, verses 4, verses 3 and 4. Descended from David to stand in for humanity declared Son of God in power by his resurrection to stand in for divinity. The greatest paradox of all is Jesus, the God-man able to do what we all need but can't. Friends, the gospel is the amazing paradox because at the center of it, we have the greatest paradox, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And the beautiful paradox of the book of Romans that this presents to us is this. The God that shouldn't love us does. The sinner redeemed in Christ is saint. Grace and peace in a world of sin and strife is ours. All this, all this, not because we did anything, but because he did everything. And that that greatest paradox leads us, and I'll conclude with this, with our own personal paradox, and that is this. We all have to wrestle with giving up the thing we think we're going to get life from but don't so that we can take hold of the thing we fear is going to take life from us but actually gives it. 
See, that is the message of this book that has transformed men and women, young and old, rich and poor, educated, not educated, for thousands of years. And the prayer I have as we go through this book, that, that the book of Romans will have the God's intended impact in your life as well. Maybe for the first time to grasp the gospel like so many others throughout history. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for this amazing letter. Lord, we see your providence in that uh, uh, Paul did not know uh, the church at Rome, and because of that, he wanted to give them the clearest, fullest explanation of what the gospel is in its entirety, in its complexity, and its simplicity, with all of its implications, that we would be the beneficiaries of this. Lord, as we spend several months just diving in deep to Romans, Spirit, would you really convict us? Convict us of our sin that we might see a Savior and our need for the Savior. Lord, we pray that we would not cling to traditional notions of religion and our own self-righteousness, but we would, we would know that we have no righteousness in our own to stand upon. But that's okay, because the righteousness of Christ is offered to us. So we thank you for this, and we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.